Welcome to the Curve Mindset. In this hour-long special, we chat with Athletic Evolution founder Rob Anderson. We discuss Rob's multi-sport journey, which now sees him as a Scottish rugby strength and conditioning coach for the Borders and East Lothian Academy. We discuss why making mistakes and learning from them is crucial for future development as a coach, why strength and conditioning could be the perfect environment to foster a growth mindset, reframing how coaches interpret success with youth athletes, and Rob's coaching horror show and what he learned from an experience that we challenge all coaches listening to do and to let us know how you got on at The Curve Mindset and at Athletic Evil UK on Twitter. This is a truly fantastic insight from a coach with such a varied background. It's definitely bound to stimulate a few talking points amongst your coaching staff. Also stick around to, at the end of the pod for a special offer to attend Athletic Evolution's upcoming event in April. Enjoy. Rob, welcome uh, to the Curve Mindset. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and, and have an interview with us. Very much appreciate it. Could you just introduce yourself, uh, give us your name, what industry you're in, and just a, a wee brief synopsis of your career uh, and the length of time you've been involved in particular clubs? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Rob Anderson. I'm a strength and conditioning coach. Um, in terms of my background, originally a mad keen uh, footballer growing up on the west coast of Australia, which is pretty unusual um, in terms of the sports there. And then once I kind of did my degree and, and got into strength and conditioning, um, various kind of work experiences. So did a, an initial kind of part-time internship with Watford Football Club during my degree, um, a bit at London Broncos Rugby League. Uh, alongside that, I kind of, once I went and did my master's, um, I got a sec- uh, secondary school kind of full-time role down in Bournemouth in the sports academy which I was there for 18 months working in numerous different sports, volleyball, uh, football, boxing, golf, swimming. So a lot of ex- exposure to a lot of different sports. And then from there, um, well, actually, while I was there, I was also picking up some bits and pieces on the side for British Gymnastics, working in their trampolining program. And then I came up to uh, basically start a PhD in um, biological maturation with a professional football club in the Midlands which after a couple of months didn't work out, um, but obviously had that experience there in a Category 1 football academy. And then from there, I ended up doing a little bit in basketball for a while in London before kind of finally heading up to Scotland, uh, where I've, I'm now full-time with Scottish Rugby in the Borders and East Lothian Academy. Perfect, thank you. Um, in true professional style, I'm actually going to ask you a different question to what I've given you. <laughs> um, just very quickly, um, so you've obviously worked in lots of different sports and different yeah. fields, which I think is brilliant, and it's something that I think all coaches should try and do and get out their own sport and their mm-hmm. own passion to try and see what's going on. But just, is there any like main differences of mindset you've seen between particular sports, whether that be positive or negative? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's a lot of sports that you kind of, if you don't have the right attitude or the right mindset, there's like an, a natural filtering process. So uh, the one that springs to mind is swimming. So if you're not motivated and you're not committed to getting better, you're not going to get out of bed at 4 to 5 in the morning and get down the pool. It's simply not going to happen. So step one is people who turn up are tend to be motivated. The other one would be gymnastics um, because what gymnasts do as a warm-up would be a strenuous training session for just about every other sport. So those guys are used to working hard and they understand the kind of sacrifices involved. Um, so the mindset there is, is, is incredible in terms of those two sports. Um, I think then team sports is maybe a little bit different. Um, obviously, you have the interaction among your, your kind of squads and your, your teams there, and that's maybe when you get more, a bit more variation in terms of the egos involved and maybe the, the different kind of roles players take on or assume within a team. Um, so I'd say it does vary massively across sports and kind of individual to team sports is another kind of beast as well. And then just to sort of set us up as we go along, what does fixed and growth mindset mean to you? Um, the experience, both, one in particular, what's your journey been with that? Um, I was thinking about this question when you sent it over, actually, and I kind of wanted to give a bit of a background. So 
I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit strange. I'm a bit weird in terms of the norm. So I remember as a kid, uh, being in the back seat of my car when my parents were driving, and I would just go past a random stranger, and I used to think, I wonder what that person is capable of, like what their potential is. So from a very young age, I was always very kind of in- intrigued into what people, what unknown skills, or unknown abilities people hadn't tapped. Um, so, you know, are you walking down the street past a world Taekwondo champion who never became that because they just didn't get into it? Um, so for me, like that kind of human potential was a big thing. And I would say my first kind of interaction with what I would now understand as the growth mindset um, was as a kid. So my my family is incredibly musical. My dad was a professional musician for many years across Europe. And in my family, when you could walk and talk, you got given an instrument. So from the age of three, I started playing the trumpet. And looking back at it now, it's incredibly abnormal. But at the time, it was very normal to have people in my house practicing their instrument five, six hours a day. So my oldest brother would practice guitar for five or six hours a day. My uh, next brother for me would be drumming. Other one would be playing the bass. My sister would be singing. So it was, it wasn't, it was just a thing to me that if you wanted to get better, you had to practice. And it was drilled into me from a very young age that, you know, practice makes perfect, but now we'd say practice makes permanent. But so for me, there was no other option to getting better. If you wanted to get better, you had to practice and you had to refine your skill. So there was an element of understanding that you're going to make mistakes. And this is probably another throwback to the, the music thing in that my dad's first love and still the main love of his life is jazz. And the thing about jazz is it's improvisation. Mm-hmm. So one of the, my dad's favorite sayings when we were growing up and playing a lot of bands was there's no such thing as a wrong note. So that gave you the confidence to go and do long solos or whatever it was without thinking you're going to make a mistake. And even if you did, it didn't matter. So that, from a very early age in music, set me up very well for a later life in sport. So for me now, I think fixed and growth mindset to me basically means how well we can kind of tap into our potential. Because uh, although physically you may have a lot of potential, if your mind isn't, isn't driving in the driving seat of that process, then you won't, you won't reach that, whether that's musically or physically or in sport or in academics or whatever it is. And so it's this kind of, for me personally, it's a constant hunger to be better. So uh, regardless of how other people are doing or how they're achieving, it's about, for me personally, reaching the kind of best level I can. So when I am trying to coach other uh, young athletes, I'm trying to encourage them to not compare themselves to other, other athletes. Uh, because typically we compare ourselves to people who aren't as good as us mm-hmm. to make ourselves feel better. So instead of comparing yourself to someone who might not be as quick, saying actually, okay, yeah, you're fast, but could you be faster? Or is this the fastest you're ever going to get? Or is this the strongest you're ever going to get? So for me, fixed and growth mindset is kind of the driving seat of how far we get in terms of learning experiences, making mistakes, and, and really latching onto the experiences that come out of those mistakes and the lessons that come out of them. And as a young coach, how would you best describe your mindset and, and maybe even if you can go into maybe if it's, changed or developed over the years you've been working perhaps maybe going into different sports and coming back out if it's if it's shaped it in any way yeah I think I mean I would say I have a growth mindset most of the time I think like anyone we kind of fall into those traps where you you kind of maybe get to a negative frame of mind I think I'm just never going to get the skill but uh, I would describe myself generally as, as being as possessing a growth mindset so I'm always looking for opportunities to learn looking for feedback putting myself in uncomfortable situations purposefully to try and stretch myself and challenge myself. Um, and I think that that comes with confidence. It comes with uh, like experience in knowing that it's okay to make a mistake and that actually not every session you do has to be perfect. But as long as you're reflecting on that and, and deciding what action you're going to take moving forward, that, that is a valuable learning tool. And I think one of the... The best kind of um, summaries of that would be a book that I came across recently from a friend of mine who is a former um, Marine commando. And he basically is a book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. I don't know if you read it. No, no. Um, but I would recommend it. But basically his whole, the whole, if I summarized it in like a couple of sentences, the whole philosophy behind that book is if you don't own up to your mistakes and you blame someone else, you have effectively passed on responsibility for that situation. And if you pass on responsibility, that means you've passed on your influence to change it, which means you've basically disabled your ability to be better in the future because you said, well, that wasn't anything to do with me. 
And if it's not anything to do with me, I can't fix it or I can't change it. Whereas if you go, actually, this is my, this is my fault in some way, whether it's the organization or it's the communication or it's the way I delivered the session. And, the, and that then asks the question, well, how can I be better in the future? Whereas when you blame someone else, it doesn't lead you down that path. It absolves you of that, that mistake. And it says, well, it's someone else's problem. They have to fix it. So actually, although our first instinct is to get rid of mistakes, it's only by really embracing it and taking extreme ownership, as he calls it, that we become better and become uh, growing as individuals, as athletes or as footballers, whatever we are. No, and I think that links in very well to, to what Carol Dweck said in our, our book Mindset and the fact that saying absolving yourself of any responsibility reduces your influence to change it and that's you know in terms of taking on strategies and going okay I've made that mistake that's happened what can I do now to not make that happen again what new strategy or next yeah. thing can I change and I think that's should be really what encapsulates a growth mindset within the the field of strength and conditioning I, want, I wanted to get your take on how important you think the athlete's mindset is and then kind of after that, the subsequent question to that would be, how often is it discussed with athletes? I think it's massive. Um, I think for me, strength conditioning is kind of the perfect environment to develop a growth mindset because the whole idea, the whole premise behind it is we're trying to make you better. So to do that, we're going to go to an uncomfortable place, whether that is you know, doing 10 reps with a weight that's, that's going to challenge you, or whether that is doing some sort of trunk endurance exercise that we're going to, we're purposefully creating discomfort to produce progress. So for me, I think it's colossal in terms of how far athletes get. And I think it's something that kind of happens a little organically in the process because, you know, you're set, you're automatically setting goals. Okay. Your YRM is 70 kilos. What do we think is a, is a realistic expectation in six months time? Okay. 80 kilos, right? Okay. So now we're saying the bar is not 70, the bar is 80 and we're trying to shoot for that. And it's very objective is the other thing. So within strength and conditioning, everything is kind of measured. So your speed, your height, your weight, your skin folds, your uh, momentum in 10 meters. So there's very objective measures to show progress or regression. Um, and essentially in my role, that's what we're measured on is progress. How are these players, players progressing in their speed, in their counter movement jump, in their fitness levels? Um, so it's a very obvious measure of how players are improving physically speaking whereas technically it's a little more subjective you know you can say okay this player is improving technically but how do we measure that it's a bit more difficult so strength conditioning is a bit better in terms of its objectivity that we can measure that um and i think the the athletes that succeed the most in that environment so i'm thinking of the athletes that i work with there are two in particular that coaches have nothing bad to say about mm-hmm in terms of their work rate, their work ethic, their attitude, their consistency. Like these guys, these two guys who are being looked at by pro clubs frequently and are on the, the tables of talks, they bring it every day. And I kind of, I wrote about this recently in, in uh, talking about consistency being the kind of key variable. And it's not that these guys, you know, are going hundred miles an hour every day, but every day you turn up and you know what you're gonna get from those two guys. Whereas with the other guys, it's 50-50. You walk in the door, they might be having a good day, they might be having a bad day, you don't know. But there's these two guys that you know every single time you see them, they are going to go, if it's within their control, they're going to do everything you ask of them. And I think that mindset, there's something special about that because things start to happen in your favor when you're like that. Because coaches know, I can take this guy and I can mold him because he, he has the mindset to do well. Whereas if you're constantly cajoling people, constantly saying, oh, you know, you should, you should have to think about this or, you know, you need to work on your timekeeping or your effort's not there or your consistency's not there. You're, that's really stage one stuff. That's down at the bottom because you can't, it doesn't matter how fast you are if you're only fast 10% of the time or how well you pass if you only do it 10% of the time. It's about that consistency and ability to do it week in, week out that's going to make you better. It's that deliberate practice. You know, Anders Ericsson kind of floated that idea of deliberate practice and I think that feeds in really well to mindset in that people are seeking out opportunities to deliberately improve and they're putting themselves in situations, putting pressure on themselves to improve. And so I think mindset is huge uh, because ultimately we all have our limits physically, but we'll probably never reach them because we opt out mentally first. Mm -hmm. 
And I think we see that, you see that in strength and conditioning all the time. Like, so I've worked with you know, kids between the age of 10 and 20 for a long time. And I know when, when they have got more in the tank. And they don't know that because it's all relative. You know, if, you, if the most you've ever uh, done in a yo-yo test is a 13, you don't know what a 15 feels like. Mm-hmm. You don't know what a 20 feels like. So mentally you can go, oh, that, um, that's enough for me. No, that, that 16 was good enough. But actually I can see looking at you, you got two more in you. Mm-hmm. And so it's about trying to, trying to empower them to think about how can I give my absolute best and, and do that consistently, but also constantly looking for opportunities to grow. So a big one is injury. So we've got a guy recently who just fractured his ankle, was on, the, on, on board to be playing national age grade stuff in a few weeks' time, big setback potentially. So how do we reframe that? We're like, well, right, now this is an opportunity for us to really push up a body strength. Your lower body strength is going to have to put on hold, but we know you need to put on some size and some strength, so we're going to really go for that. So instead of it being this colossal, what a tragedy, you might be missing national age bit stuff. It's like, right, let's prepare you for the next bit by really focusing on this one area. So I think uh, mindset is really important, and it is something we discuss uh, with athletes a lot in terms of the coaches that I work with are very, I'd say, verbal about and uh, open about that and about people's mindset. So one of the, the kind of fundamental things we've done with the academy this year is sat down with the players and basically got them to decide on what they wanted as a culture or as a values. Mm-hmm. So the value they came up with with a little bit of guidance was accountability was the first one. And we said, okay, how are we going to measure that? And they, they came up with three things, which was um, the right, right time in the right place with the right kit with 100% effort. So that's what they measured on. And we said, all right, this is what we're going to go for. So essentially in doing that, they've kind of set their standard for this is what we're going to do. And we build on from that. But it's about being able to do those things, create a certain standard in your head. My standard is I'm on time. My standard is I always have the right kit. My standard is I'm putting in 100% effort. Those standards set you up really well to do, you know, to go further in your skill set, to go further physically. But if you, if you don't have those things, you're already at a disadvantage. If you can't turn up on time, you can't put in effort, you can't uh, you know, bring the right kit or the stuff you need, then you're already behind the eight ball mm-hmm. and you've got to catch that up. So I think it's, it's something that we have kind of purposefully tried to create in the academy in terms of what we value and the standards we have. And, and we're very open about what those standards are with the players. And when they don't meet those standards, there are consequences as a collective that happen. Uh, so they understand, I think, what we're looking for from a mindset perspective. And I mean, just yesterday, I was having a discussion with a player. It was, it was saying in the gym, he said to one of the other guys, I can't remember what he was doing, he was bench pressing, was he said, stop, you're making, you're making me look bad. And I said to him, why should he have to lower his standards just so you can catch up? Mm-hmm. Like, he shouldn't have to get worse so you feel better about yourself. You know, you should actually just be pushing, your, pushing yourself to reach that standard. So I think it's about reframing things. Um, and I think a lot of the time it is about mindset with a lot of people because if you get to the root cause of it, a lot of reasons why people offer excuses and, you know, maybe the classic one is blaming the ref. Right? Yeah. It's, that's an easy target, right? Everyone yeah. can walk away from a football match for a match and say, oh, the referee was shocking. Okay, but you know before the match starts, the referee is a human. And you know before he starts, he's going to make mistakes. So within your control, you need to do everything possible to prevent him from being in a situation where he has, he has to make a call he's mm-hmm. maybe not sure on. So, okay, even if he has made the wrong call, you made it easy for him to make the wrong call because you were in the wrong place. Yep. You know, if you clattered someone from behind because you missed time or something, that wasn't his fault. You know, he, okay, maybe he gave you a card <laughs> and he shouldn't have, but you were in the wrong time. You screwed up. You weren't in the right position. You weren't jockeying well. You didn't close down the right space. That's your fault. But if you stick on the referee, you've gone, he's a crap referee. What could I have done? It would have happened to anyone. Yeah. But no, if you'd done your job properly and you'd done what you, you should be doing, you wouldn't have given him the option to make that decision. Yeah, and it goes back to what you said about the book you mentioned earlier about absolving that responsibility. And if you're passing blame on to different teammates or coaches or the referee, you know, you're, you're missing a, a massive learning opportunity, aren't you, to, mm. to go forward. Just on, you've, kept, you've, you've almost answered this, but, and obviously setting up at the start of the, the campaign and getting the players in and asking them and building that culture, I think it's a great idea and it's something we try to do as well. 
But on a sort of day-to-day basis, if you are working with those athletes that are perhaps uh, a struggle or, like you said, are 50-50 going in, what kind of strategies do you imply day-to-day to try and keep them on the right side? I think we're lucky in that we have those two guys who are, are automatically leaders. Mm-hmm. So, And they're not the most outspoken players. So they come in, they're quiet, they get on with, they get on with their work. So they almost have an organic leadership in the group. And the oldest one, who's on the cast of Turning Pro, he, he'll call people out. If people aren't to the standard or they're not doing things right, he'll turn around and say, what are you doing? You, you know, put your finger out, basically. So that, that is really helpful. But again, that's you know, part of the process and part of what he's been involved in. Aside from that, I think it's about keeping people focused. The situation we're in is slightly different. So if you think about a professional football academy, those guys play together all the time, train together, play together. The guys we're working with, guys and girls, they don't play together. So they are, might have, we might have a couple of players from Melrose, a couple of players from Gala, a couple of players from Hoik, a couple of players uh, from Watsonians in the female case. So these guys, aren't, they're never going to step foot on the pitch together for their club at this point in time. Individually, they're all trying to reach the next stage of their development. So stage two guys are trying to become stage three. The stage three guys are trying to turn pro. So they're not actually a team together. However, they are, they are in the sense that they're in this training culture together trying to make each other better. So for us, it's a lot. A lot of it's about framing, reframing the goals. So they have quarterly reviews where they kind of set up technical and physical goals. And so we we'll say, okay, but you, you know, your goal was one eighty on the back squat. You're at one sixty. We know we need to do X, Y, and Z to get to one eighty. Or uh, you know, another one I had recently was with a female who's struggling with her weight, and we've done a number of different interventions with her to try and improve that, and they just haven't worked. And a lot of a lot of part of it is comes back to consistency. And I kind of said to her. You know, you know what this means long term, right? And she said, "Oh, you know, it means this and this for my health." And I said, okay, yeah, it does. But what we're talking about is your level of support. So, it's on your shoulders. We're giving you the information. We've tried to work with you. You will determine the level of support you get next year, whether you stay at a stage two or you get pushed down. And that depends on you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I think, giving power back to the player to see, will you go as far as you want? Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, for me, I will work with athletes who want to work towards what they're doing. The ones who kind of drag their heels and are constantly, you know, there's a difference between having one off day, isn't it? Everyone has an off day. But if you can bring it on the days where you feel a little bit sore or you've got a little bit of a cold or the bed was really warm because it's January and it's snowing. Like this last week, yeah. absolutely torrential snow in the borders. Uh, and there were sessions that, you know, I physically couldn't make driving from Edinburgh. We said, if you can get there and it's not going to harm your well-being to be in the car driving there, do it. And we had guys turn up and do their gym sessions or say, oh, what can I do in the club gym? You know, that shows a real impetus and a momentum. And actually those guys called out other guys and said, why didn't you come? You're going to live up the road. <laughs> you know, so, so we have this organic kind of um, training environment in that players keep each other to account. But that accountability thing is, is a central kind of value to us in terms of effort. So we can say to, to guys, was that 100% effort? I'm like, no, actually it wasn't. Okay. What are we going to do next time? Or what are we capable, you know, where is your limit? So I think one is um, like reframing them to their goals that we set or to the national age, age grade programs that they're part of or their kind of ongoing level of support in terms of long term. Because not all those guys will turn pro. Mm-hmm. Uh, the girls we have currently, professional rugby in Scotland is not an option for the female players. However, they still have the opportunity to play for their country. Mm-hmm. And so it's saying to them, okay, well, do you want to go and play in the sevens tournament in Andorra? Well, to do that, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Do you want to make sure you get picked for the next stage, next stage of the pathway for the female game? Well, we know they want to play you at prop, which means you're going to have to work on X, Y, and Z. So it's it's about, I think, tying it back to what they want. Because at the end of the day, the thing about SNC coaches is we love being in the gym. Mm. I love I love going to the gym. Like, you know, for me, it's awesome. Certain people who hate going to the gym and they don't want to, they're there because they have to be there. Yeah. So how can we make it relevant to them and make them realize that, okay, whilst I might, hate deadlifting or I might hate doing what I'm doing that's going to help me by doing X, Y and Z mm-hmm. so it's re- relating it back to their game back to their position back to them as an individual to say okay you love the sport of rugby and you want to go far but we know that to do that you have to get stronger legs the way to getting stronger legs is squatting so squatting is going to get you stronger legs which is going to help you in the scrum which is going to get you played choice is yours do you want to squat yeah. or not and I've 
when we agreed to sit down and have the interview, um, I was going on your website and going through your blogs, and some of them are fantastic, really good reads. And um, I picked out a couple just to discuss with you a bit mm-hmm. further. So one of them was why youth strength and conditioning is a failure. Yeah, <laughs> a two-parter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I've just you discussed the idea of coaches uh, defining success by how many of their athletes, players uh, that they coach becoming professional. And, and in your article, you reference a few statistics that actually, as I was reading it, tied in it's the No Hunger in Paradise documentary yeah. that was on. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great book as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you suggest on that basis we're all failures as coaches. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you called for a shift in perspective uh, and a more human-centred approach in contrast to an, athlete, an athlete-centred approach. So what are the negative impacts of coaches at, um, ad- adopting a criteria based on success of their athletes, players, and perhaps not engaging with that more human element. Yeah, so th- I'll give you a little story, a friend of mine. So uh, I've got a friend of mine, John Pierce, who was in uh, the squad for the 2012 Olympics for handball. Um, and he said, I can't remember, who, he was talking to a Scandinavian coach. I can't remember what country they were from. But he said, he said, the Scandinavian coach said, the problem with you guys in the West is you want to throw all your eggs at the wall and see which golden egg survives. And that's your talented player. You don't want to nurture those eggs and bring them out. And, and, and create all of them to wherever they can be. And I think we do that. We, we basically create this system where we're looking for that one golden egg. And the problem with that is the collateral damage. It's the, you know, once those eggs hit the ground, we can't put them back together again. If you look at uh, not just the, the kind of attrition of players in academy football in particular is a big one. Yep. I mean, the statistics of players making it from that under nine or under eight category when they start against the system to first team we've probably got a better chance of winning a lottery. Yeah, something like 0.0012%. Yeah, it's crazy. So if you look at that, so if, if let's imagine you, uh, you're a stockbroker and I'm one of your clients and you tell me your success rate is 0.012%. <laughs> what, am I going to give you my money? No, no I'm not. not. So in any other industry, that sort of a percentage would be laughed at the door and people would say, this is ridiculous. It's not financially viable. And we're starting to see that now yep. with the likes of academies like Brent, uh, Brentford yep. close their academy. More and more places close their academy. Look at Man City. Like How many players realistically are going to come into Man City's academy and get all the way to the first team? Like, Why, are we, why would you put 10 years into someone when you can just keep buying people? You know, so, th- so there is this, it's, you know, it is a situation that's happening in football. And a lot of, I suspect, a lot of Category 1 or Category 2, 3 academies only have them because the FA kind of forces them to. Mm. Because it's like, this is a, you know, you have to do this. Um, yeah, so the, the kind of attrition rate of academies is a major mm. issue because we're, tr- we're treating human beings um, basically like collateral damage in terms of they're all commodities. So... We're not looking, you know, coaches always talk about, oh, I have an athlete-centered approach, and, you know, we yeah, athlete-centered. And it's ultimately, really, it's nonsense. Because if we did, you wouldn't pick up kids at eight years of age, take them away from their mates, stick them in an institutionalized training program for 10 years, at the end of that 10 years, let them go and not have any ongoing support. That's not athlete-centered. Because we've built them up to think they're going to get to this journey and then take it away from them. Um, so we need to recognize that there's a more like wider reaching consequences of of talent development that doesn't go right like yeah great it's great when that guy makes the first team but what about the three squads before his age group and the other guys in his squad who didn't make the first team mm. or who you know ended up playing non-league football or whatever so my kind of uh, that was you know that's one aspect to it the other aspect that I had was um, when we look at players going on in their career at some point you're going to either get deselected you're going to get injured you're going to fail to get another contract or just straight up you're going to retire like everyone stops playing professionally at some point and how are we preparing players beyond that so you have this you know you might be cut from an academy at 15 years old but equally you might retire at 35 having had a really great career but now who are you because this whole time you've been a footballer right mm-hmm. and we see this you see this you know, classic kind of front of the sun stories of this guy had millions and now he lives on the council estate because he spent gambled his money and drank it and blah blah mm-hmm. blah um, because we we kind of worship this physical talent so much that we don't challenge the, the holistic element in terms of personality, characteristics, in terms of uh, attitude and all this other kind of stuff. So what I was kind of suggesting is actually, for me personally, success is not just those guys that make it to that top level. It is walking down the street in 10 years' time and one of the athletes that I've coached crossing the street to come and say, man, I remember those sessions we do. 
Like that was, I love that. That was great. I remember like the really great times we had doing X, Y, and Z. You really inspired me as a coach. In fact, because of you, I went and, you know, now I coach athletes as well. It's about that kind of mm -hmm. reciprocal yeah. paying it forward. That to me is going to be just as important as the one guy that makes it pro because you've made an impact in that life. And, and we, as coaches, like if I think back in my own life, and I guess this is probably the reason I got into coaching, the people who have influenced me most in my life among that group are the first couple of coaches I had. The first S&C coach I had at the age of 15, 16. Like a number of times I've said to him, everything you did with me was bang on. Like I didn't, I didn't realize at the time. And I can trace back you know, my desire to be better, my desire to be a strength coach to some of those things that, that happened in those sessions. So actually, we're looking for talented footballers, for rugby players or whatever it is. But we might be producing accountants, lawyers, council workers, whatever it is. So we need to be aware that actually we have an impact that's, that's beyond just the sport. And that then begs the question, you know, how do you, how do you, what sort of support structure? How do you structure this kind of process? And then, you know, there's a, a big move with the Positive Coaching Scotland kind of organization in terms of what they're doing. Yeah. And, and they tie in very heavily to the growth mindset, very open about that. Um, much bigger in the States as well some of John Wooden's work on his pyramid of success and the character traits <clears throat> he looks to develop. And so there, are, there is stuff out there that is kind of theoretical frameworks on how this stuff can work and how you can measure some of the success. But I think ultimately it comes down to, you know, do you, in 20 years time, will you really just care about how many guys you had that, that played pro or will it be the kid who invites you to his wedding? Because actually you were such a big influence on that life right. or, you know, they cross the street to come and talk to you and, and introduce their kid to you. Like, this is the coach I had yeah. last 15. You know, I mean, those relationships will last much longer than anyone's professional career. No, absolutely. And uh, what I was writing down as you were talking is about, is it a kind of, when you've worked in academies and, and I've got a small role within, within Hearts, and is it a sort of elephant in the room a little bit with it and sort of maybe even though coaches might think that because of the pressures round about, that they're actually not something you may be frightened to say mm. or frightened to maybe go in with that attitude and philosophy because then you might not fit what that club want to do or want to achieve yeah I think it's I think ultimately like from a kind of PC perspective everyone say yeah we're athlete centred um, but really what does that look like mm. you know, what, what does that look like in terms of how much information we give the athlete what does that look like in terms of what we give the parents but I think it's actually almost the most optimum thing because And I was thinking a long time ago, I was, I was due to present at a conference and it didn't, didn't happen in the end because of another thing I had going on. But I was kind of talking about this topic. And one of the things I was kind of suggesting is, you know, every coach wants the availability of their full squad. Mm -hmm. no, you don't want to have to choose from 16 players. You want to be able to choose from 25 or however many you've got. Now, the things that impact that are discipline on and off the pitch. Now, we don't need to look very far to see in football players who, you know, getting banned for things that are completely avoidable in rugby players who've been banned for stuff that's not even happened on the pitch um you know the number of times you see sportsmen getting caught for stuff and being basically deselected from the team uh, you know nfl had a whole thing with dog fighting mm -hmm. that's got nothing to do with nfl and yet these guys are then deselected so those those are situations that have happened and could have been potentially avoided if we engage with those athletes at an early point in time about their character Yeah. about their attitudes and their values. And we actually, instead of just giving lip service to it, actually discussed it. This is the standard. This is what we're looking for. You know, this is what it means to be accountable. This is what we're looking for in terms of effort and behavior on and off the pitch. You know, we do, players get media training and social media training, all this kind of stuff. But how often do we sit down and go, do you know what? Your behavior has cost us three games because you've been banned for three games and we were out, you're, you know, you're a goal scorer. Or you're one of our primary goal scorers in the squad and we're down because you got caught drunk driving mm -hmm. or you got caught dogfighting or whatever it is. You know, like I saw, there was one, there was one NFL one a couple of weeks ago that someone put it up as like an SSC group or something like that. And someone put like, you know, injury prevention and there was two players who have gunshot wounds. And it's like, <laughs> that's an extreme example. But you're obviously moving in circles that you yeah. probably shouldn't be moving in. So there's a whole other element, but we're, you know, often coaches are afraid and they're stepping eggshells because we don't want to challenge players, particularly if they're talented, particularly if they're worth 10 million. We don't want to say, hey, do you know what? You shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. Do you think, though, then, do you think it's maybe a bit down to, to education, you know, going, like, maybe coach education and the fact that 
you know, I know through training to be a teacher, they know there's a lot of stuff about, you know, how to, to speak with children and there's loads of stuff still in place as you go through your teaching career to help you with that. But it's always something I've found just doing some of the coaching courses I've been on that it's always, it's maybe there, but it's not something that's very focused fundamentally. And I always think, you know, that's an area that, having that chat with a player and, and, and being able to kind of get to know them a bit more is, is really important but maybe people feel a bit I don't know if it's uncomfortable or if the fact they've got a session to plan they've got you know they're thinking about the game they're thinking about the equipment that that kind of part of it just gets further down the pecking order hmm. is that something you think that could be could be improved in that? yeah I think it's an interesting one because there's so many elements especially in like an academy setting so you know, players need to do their technical training. They need to do their strength and conditioning stuff. They need to do their prehab. You know, and a lot of time, like I had this conversation with my boss, where we were saying, you know, do we actually sit down with them and talk about performance habits? Because we, we say these are important and we schedule in strength and conditioning, we schedule in skills, we schedule in video reviews, we schedule in prehab. Where do we schedule in the workshops that are about sleep or about nutrition or about alcohol? No, it's actually about you know giving these things enough weight to sit down and go right guys we're going to talk about this because it is important mm. because actually you going out on a Friday night and getting, getting pitched with your mates affects us on a Saturday morning and no matter how talented you think you are that is going to influence your performance you might get away with it for a little, little while but you get called out I mean uh, you know there's baskets basketfuls of players who probably could have been better than they were did they not have a drinking problem mm. or did they not have a gambling problem or they're not caught doing X, Y and Z when they shouldn't have been um, and ultimately that the reason they're out of play or they're not being selected is not is nothing physical. It's not that they weren't technically good enough. It's not that they they weren't you know physically good enough. It's that they did something from a character point of view that was stupid and cost them. They got caught. You know. So if we really want to maximise these kind of these players, we should be investing in them from a character point of view as well as a physical and mental and nutrition and psychology you know, sports psychology point of view. We should be looking at creating. The representatives of the sport and this is where I think positive positive coaching kind of organization does really well because they talk about you know being a, a double goal kind of coach like concentrating on developing the player as well as the result so then the whole thing is like not that we just go results don't matter and winning doesn't matter but actually we're looking to develop the process and they you know uh, there was a they kind of have a, a mentality of being a triple impact player so a triple impact player is someone who makes you know their teammates better their club better and the sport better mm. So, okay, you're going out and drink driving. Are you making your team better? No. Are you making your club better? No. Are you making the sport better? No. You know, so actually, if we create more triple impact players, if you like, in, in inverted commas, that's only good yeah. for the team, the squad, the club, the sport, reputation of the sport. It, it can only be a good thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's something that I kind of touched on that in the last interview as well, that it is that element of engaging with the players and that more humane element and I think it's something that's really really important especially nowadays I think bygone is a time where you know the players would just turn up and do exactly what they're told their their question they want to know why they mm. want to know more and I think we as coaches especially have to take that time to try and get to know them and I think also as well it, it really helps you with your sessions and what you're going to do and if you understand what that player's going through or what their home life's like and what their triggers are like then you can plan stuff into your session that actually make it work better it's a, a real good cycle that yeah. you can get yourself into yeah I think it's I think it's really important like you get a lot of coaches who they're more like chess masters they just want to move the pieces around and you're just a piece in that chess board so your job as a right back is to do x y and z I don't care what you do outside of here I don't care what you like as a person I don't care about your wife kids family x y and z just do the job and then you have other people that are the opposite you know, a very kind of relational. And I think that actually it's a, it's not important to be liked by your players, but it's important that they understand that you that there's, there's a relationship there in terms of I'm interested in you as a human being. So when I talk to my athletes, yeah, we'll talk about the match of the weekend or we'll talk about what they're doing, but I'll also ask them, how's school going? How's work? You know, well, I, like I'm showing an interest in their outside life on purpose because I'm recognizing that you are not just a rugby player. That is yeah. one slice of your life. The other slice is you're a student at school. The other slice is you might be working in Tesco's. You know, there's all these other things to you. You're not just this one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if you look at it from a physiological point of view, our body just understands stress. So if you're stressed at school because you've got prelims, that's going to affect your physical performance. Yeah. If you're stressed at work because your boss is bearing down on you, you're not performing well, that's going to affect you. You know, if you're stressed because you just had a newborn baby, 
and you're not sleeping well, that's going to affect your performance. But if I don't know you, I might not know any of those things that happen. And then I just go, you're slower than you are. Why are you slower? What's going on? You yeah. cut. You know, and ultimately, you'd be a better coach for having that information. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to jump ahead to just something else since we're kind of more focused on coaching, then I'm going to come back to your sure. horror show blog. <laughs> I, I love to read that one. There was a, an, an article you put about changing mind and about coaches with philosophies, and it's something that very recently seemed to be quite in vogue that every coach has to have a philosophy. Not one of the quick questions we'll get is, what's your philosophy, what's your view, what's your belief? Um, and I wondered what your thoughts were in terms of how important you think that is, but also how important it is to to be wary of not just having a very fixed mindset, I suppose, in terms of, well, this is what I think and this mm. is where I'm going to go, mm-hmm. and still accepting if things aren't going so well, having that maybe growth mindset where you're maybe going to reevaluate your own strategy and, and go forward. Yeah, I think it is important. I think it's, it's kind of a, it's a difficult topic because it's, it's easy to have pitfalls in it. And I think, you know, some people say you shouldn't have a philosophy, you should just have principles. Um, but I think the two can be can be intermingled. I think the issue with a philosophy is if you kind of tie yourself to it, then you're like a workman who has a hammer, which means you'll get so far and not much further, mm-hmm. and you'll probably end up being inefficient. So you need to be open to having different perspectives and having people challenge that. But I think uh, that having or, or identifying what your philosophy is is important, and that always changes. Like if you are open and you are learning and you're, you know, speaking to more experienced coaches or you're speaking to coaches working in different settings, you're always going to pick up other things that will A, change your mind or change your perspective or make you start thinking about something. You know, if I look back to when I came out of uni and I knew everything, (laughs) I thought everyone should squat deep, everyone should do Olympic lifts and, you know, X, Y, and Z. Now, if you ask me to do that today, I'd be like, well, not so much. Yeah. Everyone should squat deep if they can, if there's no injuries, if they can do it proficiently, you know. Great. If they can't, then you know a partial squat's okay. If we're working around an issue or a single, so so there's certain things in terms of of from philosophy that you might start to change because it's very easy to have a rigid philosophy when you're not practicing it. I can sit on the couch and say every team should play four four two. Everyone should have a big target man. Every, you know, okay, great. Until you're managing a team that doesn't work, and then what do you do? Yeah. You know, then you go, okay, we're gonna have to change this. Um, so I think that's the thing with philosophies is. And it's good to have one because it's a starting base. You know, if you if you're not if you haven't thought through the way you want to play or the, or the way you want to work with your athletes, you're going to be a bit erratic because you haven't got a script to go to, so to speak. But at the same time, you need to be open to being challenged on that because we all have our own biases. You know, everyone is going to pick a certain way that for some reason they're emotionally attached to. You know, as humans, we are emotional creatures, and we. We make decisions emotionally and then justify it with logic after the fact. You know, and if you understand that, then you can kind of realize, okay, I'm biased because of this or on this topic. But if I was, if I tried this, well, what's the worst that would happen? Or would this would this suit this particular situation? You know, or is you know particular way of playing? You know, for example, I mean, obviously, small sided games is is all the rage now. Has been for a while. If I was a coach who only ever used small sided games, what do I do with that player who needs specific technical work on passing or corners or whatever you know or would I just never do set pieces because that's not a small sided game you know, so you can't tie yourself to a certain dogma you have to be flexible with it and understand that in this context yeah that might work and in the context that might not work uh, the classic one is kind of coaching am I going to be really authoritarian or am I going to be a bit um, more of a kind of uh, sort of democratic coach okay when I'm working my under 10s and it's like 30 kids in a classroom you have to be dictatorial because otherwise chaos ensues and someone's going to be hanging from the ceiling. But as, as players grow up and they have more information, they understand the sport themselves, they understand training a bit more, then we might have a bit more discussion. Well, I don't like squad because next time said, okay, well, what about this? Yeah, I much prefer that. Okay, well, we'll do that. Same thing, you know, man management in football. If everyone was a dictator all the time, it wouldn't work. Like, so you have to it'd be a little bit schizophrenic in a way and yeah. that you're able to shift and adapt and to the to the environment you're going into, I think is that's an important thing. Yeah, it, it was really interesting reading that because it's something that I've, I've spoke to a number of folk uh, about. And when you're we, for example, at the twenties, we play the same formation as the first team, <clears throat> with the idea that those boys will be ready to step into those roles. But as the season progressed, 
there were certain things that our players couldn't do or it wasn't appropriate because of our, the player ID and who we had mm. in the pitch. And mm. we then started to go, okay, well, we can still play the same formation, but maybe the demands we put on the players, maybe in terms of certain intricacies, we can reduce and we can change and we do that. And once that sort of penny had dropped, we started to, to generate a little bit more success, not in terms of wins or anything like that, but just in terms of levels of performance. And that's really, that when I read that, that really got me thinking back to that initial stage, whereas maybe at the start of the season, I would have thought, no, 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 you have to, this is what we're doing, this is what we're playing. But I think that's growth mindset, isn't it? The fact mm. that you're, you, you've, you've got an idea, you know what you're trying to achieve, but if you get a, like a road bump along the way or things aren't working out, it's like taking a step back out of it, reflecting on it. And it's not a sign of, Defeat, which I think that's maybe where some coaches and you know you, you do have to have an ego for coaching. You do have to have it, but maybe aren't willing to maybe move as much um, on those things. Like at the beginning there, you spoke about how now you've revised your mm. your philosophy on those things. Do you think that's maybe a problem sometimes with coaching? Is the fact that if you admit not admit you're wrong, but if you change something, people might go, "Oh, well, I must have got that wrong," and that yeah. maybe dents you a little bit. Mm-hmm. I am. Um, I was reminded of a really good quote actually yesterday, sort of comment, and Des Ryan had put it up here, and he's the head of the Academy of Sports Science at Arsenal, um, and his mentor, a guy called Liam Hennessy, this kind of quote is attributed to him, and the quote is, methods are many and principles are few, methods often change and principles rarely do, and the idea being that, you know, the latest thing, everyone can get attracted to it because it's shiny and new, but what actually is the underlying principle? Because the underlying principle you might find is something that has been there forever, so like, you know, from a strength conditioning point of view, people might talk about hit training. Okay, hit training. You know, it's this latest thing. Okay, but what's the principle? The principle is we're going to do some sort of, you know, sprint-based interval training. Okay, that's been around for ages. It's not a new principle. It's just it's just packaged up as something new. So I could get carried away and tie myself to this dogma. And in ten years, when someone's come out with a more efficient way of doing it, who am I? What am I? Yeah. My whole business is gone. Um, so it's just about, I think understanding what the principles are. So as a coach, you can be flexible and adaptable because your principle might be changing to the context. So yeah, okay, this particular formation didn't work, but we still want to play really attacking football. Okay, so what formation is going to work for that? Okay, parking the bus is, does not subscribe to that. So I'm not suddenly going to start parking the bus mm-hmm. because the way I want to play is this is my principle. So I think that's what I think uh, Scottish Rugby have done really well. So they... They're kind of a long-term player development pathway. They talk about principles of play. So principles of player, go forward, support. Like so, so actually, it's always tagged back to these principles. And I think it's the same for coaching. Well, my principles are that I respect the fact that these people are humans first and athletes second. So what does that mean in this session when the kid turns up and tells me he's knackered, hasn't slept all night, and is you know stressed out for his exams? Do I just go, yeah, but this is the program? Get on with it. Or do I go, do you know what? Let's just do two or three things. Take it easy. Get a good night's sleep and get ready for your exam tomorrow because actually that's more important. Mm. You know, so it's the, the principles. You know, what, what are your principles as a coach from a sport perspective, from a human interaction perspective, from a management perspective? So I think maybe, you know, philosophies and principles you could maybe interchange in terms of what what, what people would describe their method of coaching. But I think being clear on what your principles are and being open to have them challenged is can only be a good thing if you're doing it in an intellectual way and not just you know gobbling up everything that's on social media because someone did a really great George Rondos because Barcelona played tiki taka everyone should do that yeah you know that, that goes well too trying to coach someone with the under 10s you know? <laughs> absolutely so the next day uh, the next uh, it was I think it's quite a recent blog post you had up about um as soon as the title, I've seen the title horror show, I was straight in there. <laughs> so do you want to, to maybe introduce it um, and then I'll follow up with a question on it? Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, basically, as part of my kind of ongoing CPD with Scottish Rugby, I've been put on a module with uh, Edinburgh Napier Uni about developing athletes through professional practice. And one of the things, uh, one of the tasks that they asked us to do was to video a portion of our session. And because I'm a growth mindset guy, I obviously picked my worst session. <laughs> so I picked the group that I've only, at that point in time, been working with for like six weeks. And they're quite a unique group in that they're the only time I coach in the club. So I go to the club and coach the athletes there. Whereas the other ones, it's more neutral venues in that it is uh, it's like a leisure facility, basically. So there's general public around. These kids come in, we train. 
this one, there's no general public. There's just the club and the club guys and the first team players and the second team players. And I don't talk like I'm from there. It's very obvious I'm not from there. It's very obvious that I don't play for that club. So I'm going into their world. Yeah. And so that changes the dynamic of the training environment. So a video, the you know, the five minutes of this, to give some context to it, it was right before Christmas when it was absolutely freezing. It was one degree and this gym it's indoors, but it's not really. It might as well just be like, it's, it might as well be a tent. It's freezing. Uh, so, you know, I, I watched back this video of myself and I was just horrified. I was like, I do not want to, I don't want to put this on the screen in front of the coach that I'm going to work with for the 16th program, the other coaches that I respect at other institutions or other clubs. I just I don't want to put this up because, and I, I genuinely thought I want to be on another session. I'm not going to put this one up. I'm just going to be on another session. But I didn't. I was like, I'm gonna video, I'm gonna put this up. I'm gonna man up to it, extreme ownership, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get better from it. So I put it up, and I kind of said, this is the situation, this is the context, and I actually got really good feedback from it. And as a part of that, I kind of went, okay, I took that feedback back on board. And one of the big things that that one of the coaches drew out was body language. Now he said he said to me at this point in time, you look disinterested. You look like you don't want to be there. Now. Mentally in my head, I'm engaged in that session. Like, I, I want to be there. I want to coach these guys. But it's one degree outside. So I've got my arms folded because I'm trying to conserve all the body heat I can. My hands are in my pockets because my hands are freezing. So it doesn't look good. So one of the things was like, right, I need to think about my body language. I need to think about my energy. And I started thinking a bit more about transformational leadership and what I kind of want to, my principles in terms of coaching. And so I started to draw up a little bit of, okay, in an ideal world, I'd be energetic, I'd have good body language. I'd be empowering players, so I'd be asking them questions more so mm-hmm. than dictating what they should be doing in terms of you know, weights or um, how things are done. I'd be um, kind of challenging them maybe in terms of, okay, how can you do that better? Or you know, do you think maybe you could do it a little heavier or a little faster or whatever it is? So I kind of put together a little criteria that I have tried to kind of do a quick review after each session. And another part of that is, you know, did I greet every player with a handshake? Because as soon as I do that, I'm creating physical contact. I'm looking in their eyes, saying, "How you doing? How's school? How's work? How's life?" So I'm creating that phys- that um, interpersonal connection, but also trying to make sure I give every single person at least one piece of positive feedback. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my checklist now. And I, I would say it wasn't that I wasn't trying to do those things before. It's just that now I have it written down on a sheet of paper, and I'll give myself a score, just out of ten, or one to ten. And it's completely subjective, you know, but. It means in my head, I'm thinking, am I being energetic? What is my body language like? Have I given that kid some positive feedback yet? And I don't, it's not just handing it out for free, or, you know, great whatever when it wasn't. Yeah. But it's trying to, trying to find when they're winning at something. Great. That was brilliant technique on that. Perfect. Do that again next set. So I would say that has improved my coaching. Now, my technical skills haven't changed. My knowledge hasn't changed. But the way I deliver it has. Mm. And I'd say that was a really beneficial, although very uncomfortable process. Yeah, and it's something that, you know, and I'm hopefully going to do my UEFA B licence later on this year, and, there's, and I think there's 16 set observations where they come out and watch, and when you've done, when I've done these coaching courses before, and I'm sure many other coaches who are listening have done it, it's, you know that you know the stuff, you know that it's down there in session planning, you know, even for me being a teacher, I do this every day, getting yeah. up in front of groups of kids and speaking, but there is just that pressure that, that comes on you, and you suddenly go, oh, Right, okay, and you start to maybe second guess what you're saying and you, you maybe overthink things. But I like the idea of, of having that checklist that's just a few key things and it's, it's all focused on delivery. And I think that's what I liked about it most was that actually when you're speaking to coaches, you know, you're not saying there's nothing about your knowledge. You know, so, well, for some people it might be and you're understanding it, but it's actually in how you deliver. And actually if you can improve that bit, you'll actually get across more of your knowledge that you've clearly got and you've worked for hmm. um, going forward. So... No, it's something that I said to the other coach I'm working with, we should do this, we should get it done at one point and just try it out. I mean, earlier on in the season we spoke to the, we gave the boys a questionnaire about our sessions and what they thought and their feedback and that really helped us shape because again, and our ideas have been like, oh yeah, this is what you know, this is what they enjoy, this is what they don't enjoy, but actually you got different things back that you maybe weren't aware of and mm. I think having somebody observe you or, or certainly being videoed I think it's really useful because when you watch yourself back, yeah, you'll be able to pick out all those <coughs> those key things. Mm, definitely. So we're just going to move on to a little bit about mindset myths. 
So we've we've touched on some of them as we went through. But uh, Carol Dweck spoke about one of her fears being that coaches are using effort praise as a consolation prize when learning isn't actually taking place. Uh, she points out that we shouldn't be content with effort that isn't yielding results. So is this something that you've experienced as a coach and how would you go about ensuring that that's something that you, you wouldn't fall foul of? Yeah, and I think this is funny um, because, so I'll give, you, I'll give you a scenario. So football training, right? Someone crosses a great ball, someone maybe strikes it and they don't quite strike it right and it veers off to the right. What does everyone say? Unlucky. Unlucky. It wasn't unlucky. There's nothing unlucky about it. You didn't hit it right. Yeah. So we kind of offer this, ah, like that was unlucky. It's it's nonsense. It's not unlucky. And someone, I can't remember who it was. I think it was maybe Fergus Pringle, the guy I work with who's South African. He said, I hate it when people say this. It's not unlucky. You weren't in the right place or you didn't do it right. You didn't execute the skill right. There's nothing unlucky about it. So I think we do do that a little bit sometimes with consolation praise. Um, and I, I work also on the side with a couple of volleyballers who are going up to Commonwealth Games. And one thing that drives me crazy about volleyballers is they high-five all the time. Like, all the time. Every single point they're high-fiving. Sometimes they're high-fiving when they messed up. I'm like, why are you high-fiving? <laughs> Don't high-five. That was crap. Um, so, you know, there's certain situations that I think we do do this kind of consolation praise just because it's the norm and we don't actually think about it. Like, if you actually think about it, there was nothing unlucky about that. You, you were in the wrong position. You know, and actually, what should pull them and say, "Look, you obviously did well to have a crack at that, but you were you were in the wrong position. Your body shape was all wrong. You let the defender get the better side of you, or whatever it was. Um, but instead, we just say unlucky, and off they trot for the next attempt. You know. So I think we are in danger of of using kind of consolation praise, even if it is something like that, or saying good effort, or when actually it isn't at the standard that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a catch-22 because obviously you want to praise effort, we just want to praise the outcome. Uh, but we also need to recognise and not be scared not to say when it wasn't good. Like I think, I can't remember whose biography, I think it was Ryan Giggs maybe, or no, Gary Neville, I think it was reading Red. And he was saying that like when Alex Ferguson gave you praise, it was a big deal because he never did. <laughs> you know. So... I think there's maybe some balance to that in that you obviously want to give positive feedback, but you can't just be handing out all the time because then it devalues what it is. Yeah. And the same with effort feedback, which is kind of devaluing it because it just becomes background noise. Yeah, I think balance is the key word. I think when... I, I like to think of it as sort of... It's, it's weighted praise. So you if you would say, well done for, for getting in that position and you've, you've got there, but there always needs to be something attached to that to say, but next time what are you going to need to do to ensure that you hit that on target or you, you score a goal? And then that's where you open a bit of dialogue between you and the player and engage their understanding, then you can put your mm. knowledge. And I think that's really coaching. But bizarrely, it doesn't happen that often, no. that, that those conversations. And it is quite easy to be sort of on the touchline right saying, oh, I'm lucky, I'm lucky, next yeah. time, next time. But it is a, it is a sort of lazy word to, to put in. And it's something that I have try and catch myself not to say. Or if I do say it, go right, but go back in and at least yeah. give them something to think about going I think forward. it's, I mean, if you think about an ideal kind of coaching situation, like, even if it's, you know, a quick kind of scratch, match, putting someone aside and saying, look, good effort getting to the right position, but what could you have done to make that more successful? Mm-hmm. Well, I could have opened my body up a bit better as the ball was coming. I could have met it a bit better. I met it on the outside of my foot and span away. You know, you're then highlighting, okay, brilliant, go away next time you get an opportunity, try and get a better position. So, yeah, good effort on you tried, yeah, you know, because obviously the flip side of that is if we're so negative, people aren't going to be creative. They're not going to risk making a mistake because they don't want to get negative praise. But can we reframe it and go, you made the, you busted a gut to get the 18 yard box, but then you you were all wrong from that that you know what happened when you struck the ball. Well done on the first part. The second part, can we do? You know, how do you think that could be better? Yeah. Another misunderstanding that Dweck talks about is about the growth mindset equals telling kids they can do anything. She highlights that we're responsible for providing them with the tools and resources to help them progress towards their goals. So what tools and skills do you believe we as coaches or teachers or whoever should be delivering in order to develop a a true growth mindset? I think like a a deeper level of analysis. I think like if I think back to when I was playing, I don't think I really sat down and thought about 
the match that just happened and, and my role and, and what I did well and what I did badly and what I need to do next time. And I think we could be better as coaches by encouraging players to be more reflective in that and not just, I can't remember who said it, maybe it was Bill Walsh in his book um, on NFL, but he's saying that um, winning is the best perfume. I mean, like when you win, everything smells great. Yeah. When you lose, everything stings like crap. Yeah. Um, so winning just masks stuff, doesn't it? And actually, regardless of the result, go away and have a look at your performance and think, okay, at this point in the match, I didn't do X. You know, I wasn't hitting the rocks enough. I didn't lift properly in the line or whatever it is. Okay, this week I'm going to go home and work on this skill. So not just looking at the result, but, but equally teaching players to, to kind of do that more regularly. So what we're trying to do at the academy now is on a Monday night, we, we do a kind of big group session. And before that, we have team meeting and say, right, what are your goals? What's your goals for this session? Because in doing that, we're creating deliberate practice. You know, People talk a lot about deliberate practice, but it doesn't really happen all that often. How often do people go out to a session, to one of your sessions, and know exactly what their aim is in the next 10 minutes of that one drill? Okay, this one drill, we want to keep possession at 90%, or we want to make sure we're, we're getting 10 passes together or we want to make sure that your positioning is right. So instead of just going through the motions, actually doing that effort over and over again, So and reflecting on that, do we meet your goals? No, actually we didn't. That's okay. It's okay to not have met the goals, because now we're going to go, well, how can we do it better? Mm. And I think we need to teach players, you know, athletes, to do that, because that is a skill that then carries over into the rest of their life. Hey, you failed that exam. What have you could have even done better? Well, I only revised it last week. I could have started two weeks earlier. You, know, you didn't get that job interview. Nah, I didn't prep very well. I actually didn't iron my shirt. I didn't actually research the company. You know, I didn't speak very well. It's it. It then travels over, and this is the thing for me that I think, for me, sport is a and traditionally particularly is like a massive reflection of life itself. If you want to grow, you have to get uncomfortable, and you have to ask yourself uncomfortable questions. And it's easy and it's comfortable to blame everyone else. I didn't get the job because they didn't like me, or they didn't like my accent. Or I got a speeding ticket because I did X, Y, and, you know, they, he just wanted to get someone. No, you did it because you drove like an idiot. Own it, change it, fix it. You know, as soon as you do that, you, you open up a whole load of potential questions. How, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day. And it was talking about, um, it was one with Tim Ferriss, actually, with her. Her name's Helen Conker. But anyway, he was saying her dad was an inventor. And whenever she would complain about something, he wouldn't, like, say, oh, that's really bad. So he would say, okay, what would you do to change it? So it started this, que- this question in our mind. It was always, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. So instead of it being I'm a victim, now I actually am a central player in this situation and I can change it. And the number of times you hear, you hear these you know, guys getting dropped, the coach doesn't like me. Well, he likes you enough for you to get you to training. Or what have you done to make him not like you? Or what could you do to make him like you better? Because I guarantee pretty much all coaches want players that work hard and will play for the team. You do the, are you doing those two things? Yeah, okay, well then you put yourself, you can't control selection, but you can control your behavior on the pitch and off the pitch and your effort levels. Instead of just going, I'm a victim, he doesn't like me. Because that's final, well, I can't change that. But I can change my attitude, my behavior, my performance. And I think that, and just kind of tying it all back to what we started on, that that's really important, that message of being reflective and you know getting yourself uncomfortable or at least engaging with uncomfortable thoughts going back to the point we made about coaches and, and focusing on that humane element that that is it isn't it in a nutshell because that if we can get players to do that through what the, the amazing access they have to sport then hopefully in their life outside of sport and those other slices that they're they start to and then you're making a better human being mm. at the end of the day yeah and i think ultimately that comes back to the goal the long-term goal being the best player you could possibly be and only you really have control over that um, and that's that comes down to mindset because you're either satisfied with your performance or you're not and if you're not you then ask those questions why but if you just look at the result it's a win and loss black and white good and bad and that's that's kind of it really whereas if you encourage that analysis it creates opportunities for future growth future development regardless of the result and ultimately working towards being that best best athlete I can be. So that's us at the end of an interview, but I am 
and it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. And if people want to go away and find some more blog posts and find out a little bit more about you and, and Athletic Evolution, where's best to find you? Yeah, so Athletic Evolution is my little kind of side project. Um, you can find that at athleticevolution.co.uk or on Twitter at athleticevo.uk, same on Instagram. Um, we've got a really good opportunity coming up in April in Edinburgh. So basically, there's a few guys that I've been really keen to learn from for a while in the industry. And I kind of thought, if I'm keen to learn, chances are other people are. So instead of me going out to them, I brought them to Edinburgh. So in April, um, we will have four guests. So the first one, Simon Brundish, coming up from Derby, who's uh, created a program called uh, Superheroes through Strength Lab. And it's a physical literacy program that was originally... Um, designed for primary schools but it's so effective and so efficient that a lot of professional football clubs are now using it in their academies um, not just in the UK across Europe as well so he'll be coming and presenting on that and kind of the data behind that now and what they're seeing um, another chap we've got is Howard Green coming from Bolton Tennis Arena so his background is in tennis and squash former SNC coach Anna Ivanovich but currently just on the way back from the Australian Open with another player talking about coordination and how that uh basically how to you know change your practices to improve coordination uh, another one we have is uh, a guy called Shane Fitzgibbon who's coming over from Ireland and he's a really interesting chap former world champion like seven times I think in taekwondo and kickboxing so obviously from a mental perspective pretty interesting guy mm -hmm. uh, but his whole kind of uh, discussion is about creating a bulletproof trunk so what is trunk training how do we do that effectively from a really basic level up to a really higher perspective and the last guy we have is my personal mentor Dr. Jonathan Griffin from Fuller Football Club and he's the head of research and innovation there and he's going to be talking about biological maturation in football's, football academies and how they monitor that and how to make decisions off the back of that so we've kind of got four experts from different areas of the UK different age groups that they work with different sports the whole idea that there's again methods and principles there's going to be principles underneath all those guys that are, yeah. that are applicable to just about every age group so I would encourage people to get down, whether you are a physio, a sports scientist, a coach, you know, you're just a really curious parent, mm -hmm. I'd encourage people to get down. And, and if people are interested in that, they can check out, obviously, on my Facebook page, Athletic Evolution, they've got, there's a load of links there, or you can search for the event itself um, on Eventbrite. And there's an early bird discount until the end of February. So if you get in there, you can get it cheaper than the full price. Perfect. Rob, thank you very much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Any feedback, tweet us at The Curve Mindset or email us at thecurvemindset at gmail.com. Thanks.